0: turn in your bibles to romans uh, chapter 1 uh, we're going to consider this morning uh, actually just one verse i was going to do both these verses 1 in one sunday but i got uh, i got into it and discovered that it was actually going to be uh, two sermons so we're just going to look uh, at verse 16 this morning uh, for the last 9 months i've been working with uh, a personal coach i've been working with somebody who is helping me uh, really identify my core value, really identify how God has wired me, uh, and how to apply that to the rest of my life. How does that impact me as a pastor? What does that mean uh, as far as how I spend my time and my days? And so uh, he calls it a star statement because, you know, kind of like the, that star in the sky shows you the direction in which to go. It really, uh, it, it offers definition. Uh, So I'm going to share with you my star statement that I've developed over the last several months. This is mine. It says, I will glorify and enjoy God by creating new pathways of influence, which engage the whole world with the gospel. Now, if you spend any time looking at that, and I don't suggest you write it down or pay a whole lot of attention to it, but if you wanted to know something significant about me, that would be uh, a place that would offer you a lot of clues. Uh, And I'm not going to pick that apart and, and talk about it this morning. But if you looked at that for any amount of time, you would be able to walk away with some very distinct understandings about how I'm hardwired, how God has has made my mind work, what's important to me, uh, what are my priorities, uh, what do I see as as my vision as an individual disciple of Jesus and as a leader uh, at Green Tree Community Church, a leader of our staff and a fellow elders with the rest of our elders. You could get a lot of insight if you studied that statement. Well, as I said, for the next two weeks, we're going to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, because I think another way to say it is, is this is a statement that, that is Paul's star statement. Uh, it will define and help us understand the choices that he makes, the priority he sets. It may be, this might be a good way to say it. It's the why behind the what. The deepest motives of Paul's heart are going to be revealed in these two verses. One commentator spoke of Romans 1, 16 and 17 and said this, all of Romans rests on the foundation of these two verses. And I think that's an accurate statement. If you're going to understand Romans, if you're going to spend any significant time studying it and appreciating exactly the message you need to understand verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. And I actually think it would be more accurate to say, not so much that this is Paul's, star statement but that this is God's <laughs> that in these two verses God reveals to us his heart. God reveals to us his passion, his priorities for a broken and decaying world and the lost people therein. And so as we look at these two verses, my prayer has been this week and and even as recently as while the scripture verses were being read this morning, uh, my prayer is that we will see God's glory, his majesty, his grace. Because at the end of this, uh, these two verses, there's really a question that's put to us, that's put to you and to me. It's the application of this text. And the, and the application is going to be simply this, what do we believe? Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, hear the word of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father God, as we come to what is in many respects the, the hinge upon which the book of Romans swings open, we pray for your clarity And for your spirit and for your word this morning We don't need to know my opinion about this text Father what we need is for this text to be alive and working In our hearts Lord we are individuals some of whom claim to be disciples of jesus some of whom uh, Have a passing interest some of whom have uh, a critical uh, opinion Father some of us are here this morning because we couldn't wait to get out of bed and and get here as quick as we could And others of us barely were able to make it through the door And everything in between. But Lord Jesus, the one thing we have in common, each one of us, is that this word is directed to us individually and as a corporate group of people. And so we simply pray that it would do its work, that you would move me out of the way, that you would say what you want to say. Forgive me for my sin. Don't let me stand in the way. Lord Jesus, come and teach us. We pray in your name. Amen. I'm going to offer two thoughts on this text this morning, uh, both of which uh, try to uh, dissect a bit uh, this star statement, so to speak, of Paul's. Uh, and in doing so, my hope is that we will, again, not only see the passion and the heart and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the wiring of the apostle Paul, but that we will see what's behind him. Because behind the apostle Paul and behind this word stands the word of God. Uh, Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is not man's word. This is God's word. And it reveals to us something very important about God and his character and who he is. My first observation is simply that that Paul demonstrates an amazing emotional stability in his life. If you look at the first part of of verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I want to concentrate on that word ashamed because I think it's an an interesting uh, place to begin. It's an interesting phrase that Paul in his heart of hearts begins by saying, I'm not ashamed. Now, I got to thinking about that this week, and I, and I kind of mulled it over a bit and said, what causes us to feel shame? What causes me to feel shame? What causes you to feel shame? And I've narrowed my list to three so that we'll get out of here before 1.30 this afternoon. There might be lots of other reasons, but I think maybe I've captured some of the, some of the main reasons uh, for shame. The first one is uh, defeat. Uh, The first one is defeat. You know, we all love to see the big upset, don't we? We all love to see the underdog, you know, come from behind and win, right? Uh, You know, if you saw the the hockey game at Lake Placid, you know, when the U.S. beat the mighty Soviet hockey machine, you know, you were just jumping for joy. But what is it if you're on the other side? (laughs) What is it if you were the guy that was supposed to win the game and now you feel the shame and the humiliation of loss? There's something about defeat that causes a shame. Uh, perhaps you uh, have seen the movie Patton, uh, made back in uh, 1970, George C. Scott plays the famous general. Uh, and if you've seen that movie, you know at the very beginning of the movie, Patton walks out on the stage and uh, there's obviously a group of, of soldiers in front of him and he addresses them. Now, I'm not going to read that speech in church because it wouldn't be appropriate to read all of that speech in church. But I found out, interestingly enough, that that actually is a speech, not that he gave it one time, but all the words that were used at the beginning of that movie are actually from speeches that Patton gave. But I do want to read one paragraph that, that's okay to read. Patton says this, Americans traditionally love to fight. All real Americans love the sting of battle. When you were kids, you all admired the champion marble shooter, the fastest runner, the big league ballplayers, the toughest boxers. Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war because the very thought of losing is hateful to Americans. Defeat (laughs) brings about shame. If you hear the stories of some of the men who were involved in the death march in Bataan and survived that, they will talk about the shame that they felt in their surrender. Defeat is one of the reasons we have shame. The second reason uh, is uh, because of mistakes, because we're caught in an error, because we've gotten something wrong, sometimes perhaps terribly wrong, perhaps a, a serious mistake. Of uh, the small ones, you know, you can kind of say, well, I, I blew it, I messed up, and you move on. You may be embarrassed for a slight second, uh, but what about those moments where it's, it's a big mistake? I had an experience several years ago, se- Gosh, lo- gosh, maybe 10 years ago, person came into my uh, office, my study. We sat down and we began to talk. And this person revealed to me that they had been taken in by a scam. And they've been taken in by a scam, not for a couple of bucks, but for basically all of their life savings. And the, the main emotion that that person felt was shame. She kept saying, how, how, how could I be duped? How could I be so foolish? Error is a reason for shame. The other one, uh, that I'll mention this morning is uh, the word I use is relationship. And it simply mean, means who are the folks you, uh, you pick to be your friends? Uh, you know, there are times where you're around somebody and other folks see you with a certain person like, well, I didn't know you would hang around them. Uh, you might not have had this experience yet as an adult, but you can probably remember back to when you were a teenager and you were 13 or 14 years old and your mom dropped you off at the mall for the very first time and, and your friends were all kind of standing there on the corner and you had mom stop the car, you know, about 200 yards back. Because you were absolutely mortified to think that you would be seen with one of your parents. You know, pick, you know, pick that carefully. I don't want to be seen with you. My mother used to uh, threaten me with this. If you don't, be, this is like seventh grade. If you don't behave, I'll kiss you publicly in front of a lot of other people. <laughs> now, Most of you know my dad was a big guy. He was a cop. Didn't scare me half as much as my mother's threat of kissing me in front of my buddies that drove me to absolute swift and complete obedience. I did not want to be shamed defeat, error, relationship. My question is, does the apostle Paul have reason to be ashamed based on this criterion? Uh, Has he made a good choice when he says, I'm not ashamed? Well, it depends on the second half of the phrase. Because Paul goes on to explain, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And that's the second part of, no, I'm sorry, stay stay with that one. The last word on the first line, I'm not ashamed of The gospel. Now, this is the fourth time in 16 verses that Paul has used that term. So it's a very important term to Paul. It's a very uh, critical term in his theology in verses 1 and verses 9 and verses 15. And now in verse 16, Paul talks about the gospel. Well, what is the gospel to Paul? Uh, what, What is it to that which he is referring? Well, technically, the word simply means good news. Uh, If you had an announcement, a birth announcement, for example, the the baby's born uh, and you call up everybody and you say, or you post it on Facebook, you know, so-and-so has arrived, right? That's the gospel. It's good news. Technically speaking, that's what the word means. But for Apostle Paul, the good news was very, very specific. And in actually asking what is the good news is the wrong question to ask in the context of Paul's theology. The correct question to ask to the Apostle Paul who is the good news. I'm not going to put these verses for you on the screen, but I want you to listen to the first four verses of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel was not a what to Paul. It was not a message. It was not an, uh, an idea or a concept. It was a person. And the apostle Paul rightly understood that Jesus was the manifestation of God's good news to the human race. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel i'm not ashamed of jesus he feels no shame when considering jesus so the question i want to ask as a follow-up to that is is that a good choice does paul make is it a sensible choice is it a is it a good statement for paul to say i'm not ashamed of the gospel well, before we you know we're in church so we got to think the answer is yes but before we jump to that conclusion let's think about it for a minute and think about it in terms of defeat and error and relationship Does Paul make a good choice in being not ashamed of the gospel? Defeat. Jesus was executed by a Roman governor who tried unsuccessfully to release him. If you've been in church for a little while, you know the story of Pontius Pilate seeking to release Jesus, but he's overwhelmed by the mob. Jesus was utterly defeated. He He was killed in a manner that was reserved for only the worst of the worst criminals in the Roman Empire. And the Romans were very wise at devising a way of public execution that would scare others off from committing the same crime. From a human perspective, taking Scripture out of the equation, taking the work of God out of the equation, Jesus was utterly and completely defeated at the cross. Second reason for shame is error. The crime for which Jesus was executed? Well, according to the Jewish leaders who brought him before Pilate, it was because he had blasphemed it was because he claimed to be God, and no one could claim to be God. In other words, in our modern vernacular, uh, vernacular, he was a heretic. He was someone who was spouting nonsense. The error was so egregious to the people of Israel that they could think of nothing other than to get their hands on him and have him executed for that error. The other word we use is relationship. You know, it's not what you know; it's who you know. Right. Paul's pinning his eternal hopes on an obscure Jewish rabbi, in the eastern outskirts of the Roman Empire, despised by his own people. If that were not enough, on top of this, think about if you've read the book of Acts at all. If you haven't and you want to know a little bit about Paul's life and what he did kind of from day to day and you aren't familiar with that, you can go to Acts, which is the book right before Romans. Just flip back one and start in chapter 9, and you can read about the life of the apostle Paul. And here's what you'll find out. I'll save you a little bit of time, although I would really encourage you to read it if you're not familiar with it. Everywhere Paul goes, he gets beat up for Jesus. (laughs) Everywhere he goes, people try to kill him as he preaches the gospel. People throw rocks at him. People take rods and they, and they beat, beat him them with him. Them. Uh, they put him in prison. They take whips and they, and, and they beat him until he's almost dead. <laughs> Everywhere Paul preaches the gospel, he's severely persecuted, which on the face leads me to suggest that this might need to be rethought. <laughs> you know, Paul, m- maybe you ought to be ashamed. <laughs> Don't you see the reaction of the world? Don't you see how, how people, their, their knee-jerk reaction to you is such hatred and such violence? Look at their, their knee-jerk to the one that you're following. Their reaction to him was, was to despise him, was to spit upon him. And when the, when the governor wanted to execute him, he said, I'm washing my hands of this. Let this man's blood be on you. And they joyfully said, let it be on us and on our children. Paul, maybe you need to rethink your paradigm for how you reach a conclusion of whether or not you feel ashamed. But Paul would speak back to us very very clearly in the second half of this verse. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation. Paul not only had an emotional responsibility, but he had a reasoned confidence. He had a well-thought-out confidence. It was no mistake. It was no lack of intellectual ability on the part of the Apostle Paul that led him to glory in the gospel and not be ashamed because he understood it is the power of God for salvation. Now, Paul was a citizen of Rome, and he was writing to Christians who lived in the capital city, which meant they were also citizens of Rome. And if anybody in in the world knew anything about power, it was the people and the citizens of rome after all the most famous fighting force the world had ever known were the roman legions the roman navy which you don't really read about a whole lot in antiquity actually patrolled the mediterranean and brought the ancient piracy to a halt so the goods could travel safely the the roman navy was was the fear of any who would rebel against rome the roman roads the romans paved the uh... the the near Middle East and into Europe, my road got, my my, uh, Nurk Avenue that I lived on got paved this summer, got repaved. Greatest thing that happened to me all year long was that my Nurk Avenue got repaved. I was so excited about that. The Romans made traveling radically easier than it had ever been in all of history the latin language had really coalesced most of the known western world and the romans saw to it the latin was the language of the day their currency united the economy as the economy had never been united before their governmental system of justice was was groundbreaking and earth-shattering as they established rule by law instead of rule by man and you and i sit under the blessing of that decision even today. Rome defined human power. And here is Paul talking about the gospel, talking about Jesus, saying it is the power of God. And if you were a casual observer, you would say Jesus offered none of this. Jesus was not a man who came in in power and in strength and might. He was was a carpenter that that turned into a rabbi, a teacher, and he had a little group of followers around him, maybe a few hundred got down to, to 12. They all abandoned him. He was by himself when he died, hated and ostracized by his own people. Where is the power in that statement? The word that Paul uses there is dunamis, which is the word from which we get dynamite. Paul's not talking about a little power. He's not talking about a a little poof. He's talking about an explosive power that changes the course and the shape of human history. Jesus seems to be the polar opposite of this power. Paul understood something. He understood that God's power was radically different than the world's idea of might and strength. What does he say? The power of God for salvation. For salvation. For men and women, boys and girls, of every generation to be saved. You need to understand that, friends. That is your biggest need, and that is my biggest need. Because for all of man's dominance, you can start with Rome. You can start back, back up before Rome and go all through history up to this present day. For all of our abilities, for all of our wisdom, for all of our collective resources and strides that mankind has taken from generation to generation, death still is the ultimate unbreakable power ruling this planet. You can have all the roads that you want. You can build all the armies you want. You can can create wonderful civilizations, but every person in the world bows before this tyrant. Going back to the movie Patton, the very end of the the movie Patton is thinking and, and you see him riding a white horse. Uh, and he's not actually speaking to the camera, but you hear his thoughts. And one of the things he talks about is when the Romans would come back leading the legions, when the commander of the army would come back into Rome victorious and the flowers were falling from the rooftops and there was this huge party of celebration and, and the, the Caesar was invincible. He was conqueror. He was in a sense of the God of, of his world. Patton says he would have a servant stand next to him and remind him that all glory is fleeting. Why? Because death is a harsh taskmaster who takes no prisoners and allows no escape. He comes to everyone. And Jesus, the gospel, the good news of God, the manifestation of the glory of God changed all of that. Because he alone had the power to save and i'm going to define salvation in two ways We are saved from and we are saved to Jesus saved us from the eternal crisis of alienation From god as a result of our sin. I need salvation because i've offended a holy god I don't need to be a better person. I need to be saved from the choices and the decisions. I have made that go in rebellion Against god and his glory power to save us from the wrath of god against evil to save us from death and judgment and spiritual slavery you and i are guilty and no power on earth no man contrived idea philosophy or religion can save us it took the power of god wielded in the person of jesus christ to break the destructive dominance of sin and death and hell And Jesus saved us from this crisis, but he also has the power, the dynamic power to save us to a new life, a living hope, a glorious resurrection, life everlasting without end. Amen. Isn't that how we end the Apostles' Creed? We don't say that. Often enough, the green tree, I should make sure we say it more, but that's how the Apostles' Creed ends. Right? Life with everlasting life. Amen. Amen. Jesus saves us to a relationship with God. His death, his resurrection, broke the power of sin and death and freed the shackled prisoner. Do you ever listen to the song that we sing from time to time? Do you pay attention to the words and can it be? Think about these words. Wesley writes this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin, and nature's night, that's a metaphorical way of talking about the, the control of death over his life. Thine, talking about God, your eye diffused a quickening ray. In other words, God's light shone into Wesley's life, into his heart. And what happened? I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. So now he could say in verse 4, which is a direct quote out of Romans 8, which we'll get to sometime in 2000-something. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him. My living head. Clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne. Claim the crown through Christ. My own. There's no power that man could create that could do that, friends. Our salvation, as we said in the baptism, is initiated, starts with, is carried through and ends with God's decision to save us. And his gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ did what no other power in the universe could accomplish. And so Paul's emotional stability, his lack of shame is the obvious response because of why? Because that's what he believed. What does the verse say? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul says, my, my, my job in, in, in getting new life is, is just to believe. It's to put my trust and my hope in Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to play out what that means in, in, in the weeks and months and, and years. So ahead, we'll, we'll explore uh, the depth of our salvation. But at the beginning point is a question of faith, which we'll again address next week. There's no shame. There's only joy. There's no fear of death. Rather, a confidence that that through Christ Jesus, life eternal is his. And so what looks like should be shameful in the eyes of the world is now the most glorious thing that Paul could ever imagine. Uh, Many of you know the history of Nazi Germany and know that uh, in the 30s, Uh, The Jewish people were persecuted beyond belief into the end of the 40s, into the Second World War. Uh, But you know how it all started, so to speak, uh, in the mind of a madman, obviously. But it started by identifying Jewish places of business and, and shops with the Star of David. The worst thing you could see as a Jewish businessman or person was to go to your shop one morning and see that somebody had taken paint and put the Star of David on your window and identified you as an outcast identified, some of you, that, that no one in society would want to be with you. You were so distasteful, and we know where that landed up. We know that that Star of David uh, became a symbol that, that people had to wear on their, on their clothing, and that that ended up taking them into concentration camps and to horrors about which we will not speak this morning. But uh, if you've ever seen the movie Pri- Saving Private Ryan, and, and if you're young, you should not watch this movie. It's a very direct uh, uh, depiction of the horror of war. But there's a scene in this movie that is absolutely profound. Um, The scene takes place a day or two after the D-Day invasion. uh, And this group, this platoon is looking for this guy, Private Ryan. Uh, But there's a a private in the company. And it's Private Mellish. And and Private Mellish is a Jewish guy. And and as they're kind of going up the hill and they're going in, coming the opposite way are are all these captured uh, German prisoners of war, all these these guys from the, the German army. And, and Melish, Private Melish, stops on the side of the road and he grabs his dog tag and he pulls it out. And on your dog tag, and, and, and I don't know if it's still true this day, but there was a cross if you were a Christian or if you were a, a Jew, there was a star of David. And he held up his dog tags. And as these prisoners walked by, he said, You didn't, you didn't, you didn't, I'm not ashamed. You may try to kill us, you may try to wipe us off the planet, but I'm a Jew. And I stand for the Jewish people. What Paul is saying in his star statement, so does his speak, he's holding up his dog tag. Jesus, it's my gospel. I'm not ashamed. Let's pray.